Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 202, recorded on August 15th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Live from a very flat and very warm golf course in Nebraska, let's do the news. After two years, one month, and nine days of development, Debian 11 is here, with support for the next five years and a total of nine architectures. Debian can now be installed in 76 languages, with most of them available in both the text-based and graphical user interfaces. And of course, a new release of Debian is notable because of the distribution's wider impact on the Linux community and all of the projects that are downstream of it. And we all kind of know that when a package ships in Debian, you know it has been tried, it has been tested. And this release contains over 11,294 new packages. It also has official XFAT support and, finally, persistent journal functionality. And along with all of that, it ships Linux 5.10, the LTS kernel, and Debian 11 Bullseye comes ready to install some... Kinda not so fresh desktops, I have to be honest. Um, it has GNOME 3.38, it has Plasma 520, Mate 124, and XFCE 416. And with uh, GNOME 41 on the horizon, that makes 3.38 look a little old. But for those of you out there looking for something that's going to be supported for a while and ships with that older paradigm, perhaps this is a great solution for you. Something that's a little more fresh is that the live image now includes the Calamari's independent installer, as well as the standard Debian one. But going in the opposite direction, Bullseye will soon be available on physical media. Yeah, that's right, DVDs, CD-ROMs, and even Blu-rays, if you want. And of course, work has already started on the next release, Debian 12 Bookworm, which should arrive sometime in 20. 23. Well, another item that we'll be anticipating over the next few years is an increased investment in eBPF. That's the in-kernel virtual machine, and it has been solving more and more problems, and that has not gone unnoticed. The Linux Foundation, along with Microsoft and other partners, are now forming, you guessed it, the eBPF Foundation. Another foundation? Who would have thought? Founding members this time around include Facebook, Google, Isovalent, yes, Microsoft, and, of course, Netflix. They're all using eBPF for something, and in some cases, many somethings. Facebook is using eBPF as the primary software-defined load balancer in its data centers, and Google is using Cilium to bring eBPF-based networking and security to its managed Kubernetes offerings. And speaking of those cats over at Facebook, Alexei Starvoitov, the co-creator and maintainer of eBPF, and a kernel developer at Facebook, was quoted as saying this in the announcement. eBPF is a revolutionary technology that allows us to modify the operating system behavior in real time without risky or expensive kernel code changes. It has a remarkable impact on our ability to iterate quickly on everything from networking to security and containerization. Where once you might have had to compile a custom driver or even build your own kernel, now you can just do it at runtime with eBPF. And while originally all this only worked in the Linux kernel, Microsoft has been bringing eBPF to Windows. And eBPF continues to be adapted for a wide array of other environments, too. According to the Linux Foundation's press release, the eBPF Foundation will expand the significant level of contributions already being made 
to extend the powerful capabilities of EPPF and help it grow beyond Linux. Grow beyond Linux. That's a weird sentence coming from the Linux Foundation. Uh, I wonder if that was their intention. It almost reads like the Linux Foundation is being used to funnel free software innovations into the pockets of their corporate donors. And maybe this is one of those moments that shows us what the real incentive is for rich companies like Microsoft to kick money to the Linux Foundation every year. They get some fantastic code that makes their commercial products even better, and they get labeled as a friend of Linux while doing it. For better or worse, you know, these foundations are really a way for them to contribute, yes, but also influence these projects and the code bases. I think we just have to hope and kind of bet that at the end of the day, their agenda also benefits the wider community. I mean, either way, it does seem like more resources are going to go towards eBPF. And there is an eBPF summit coming up this next Wednesday and Thursday. It's a virtual event targeted at DevOps, SecOps, platform architects, and developers. And a friend of the show, Brandon Gregg, will be there and plenty of other eBPF wizards. And the talks are guaranteed to be absolutely fascinating. eBPF talks always are. And speaking of fantastic Linux kernel technologies, going on for more than one year now is the effort to bring KVM virtualization to the RISC-V architecture, something that's critical if there's ever going to be future enterprise adoption. The patch set is up to its 19th revision already, but it's not clear if it's actually ready for mainline. If I asked you to guess who was sponsoring this work to port KVM to RISC-V, would you guess Western Digital? Because that's who is leading this effort, and really for a while now. And it makes sense when you realize that there's RISC-V chips even in their hard drives. So they've really got a vested interest here. However, to put things in perspective, there's still some major technical hurdles that have to be tackled. So we're really going to have to wait some time before we see this. I mean, it is a new architecture after all. In the meantime, though, Western Digital has also been working on porting KVM tool to RISC-V. And really, this is just for demonstrating the sort of initial working version but it's also there as an early testing ground for developers who might want to try it. Listeners of this show know another area of kernel development that we have been keeping an eye on is support for Apple's M1 system on a chip and its future iterations. The Ashi Linux team has been leading that charge, and their most recent progress report has some significant milestones they seem to have reached. And Hector Martin, the founder of the project, has also been live-streaming his adventures in real-time, porting to the M1, recently recapping a lot of information. Um, welcome to the uh, Hypervisor Recap Stream. And uh, so in this stream, I'll be going over what I did over the past uh, 13 streams, which uh, were basically me writing a hypervisor. So I'm going to explain uh, why I did that and... Uh, and how it all works. They're building a hypervisor, mostly in Python, with some C, of course, in order to snoop on macOS and learn how it interacts with the hardware. Um, like uh, Alisa and the other, uh, and some of the other um, Mesa folks have been working on the user space side. So they've been working on figuring out the shaders, um, how the draw commands work, how to make the GPU you know, do different things, but all of that is in user space. So in macOS, they're looking at uh, how the libraries, the, the metal libraries in, in macOS work, how they talk to the hardware. But then there's the kernel side that has to take those commands from the user space and actually send them to the hardware. 
and also initialize the GPU and deal with virtual memory and context switching and all that. And so that's what the hypervisor is for. So now that we have this, the next step is going to be starting to write those MIO tracers that are specific to the GPU things. Think of the amount of work they're doing here. Before they even really get started, they're building a hypervisor for the M1 platform. That's like the pre-work before they can even get to their work and figure out how to write these drivers for the Apple hardware without looking at the Mac driver code. And that can be tricky because you could you could see how looking at the code could give you some good insights. But Hector Martin points out that's not always the best route to go. So they have built this hypervisor layer that sits between macOS and the hardware. So they are in fact not attempting to run Linux in the hypervisor. No, no. No, no. They are running macOS in the hypervisor, so that way they can sit between and see how it behaves. Basically, what we can do is one of two things. We can either reverse engineer the software that Apple wrote, um, which would be like decompiler you know, that's assembling the, the macOS source code, I'm uh, sorry, the macOS um, drivers. Um, some of it is open source, but very little. Most of the drivers are closed source. Only the core kernel is open source. So that doesn't help us with like all the interesting hardware. The, so we'd have to like decompile or disassemble the actual drivers, but that runs into legal issues. And honestly, it's not a lot of fun because usually the information that you need to figure out how hardware works um, is a small part of what the driver is doing. There's going to be a lot of code, there's going to be a lot of complexity, there's going to be a lot of stuff that doesn't really get to the point, basically. It doesn't, it doesn't it, you know, it, you'd, you have to read through pages and pages of code to understand how it's doing one little thing. Hector still has an unofficial goal of getting the GPU going by the end of the year. The user space side of the video driver is already passing 90% of the tests, so right now, it's really just the kernel side that's missing. But with this new hypervisor and those neat snooping capabilities, the team feels that that goal isn't actually as far off as it might seem. One of the interesting things about the M1 platform so far, and you just learn so much by reading what the Ashi Linux team is writing or watching Hector's streams, it's remarkable and it's so much detail. And what they have discovered is Apple has put a lot of the functionality that would typically be in software in the operating system via a driver, and they've baked it into the firmware essentially making it simpler to run alternative operating systems on the M1 hardware because the driver software has to do a lot less. It also means, though, they have to be very careful about how they manage firmware on the M1 platform because Apple has the luxury of just blasting out the latest firmware and requiring that macOS use that. But in Linux land, we like to separate out kernel and firmware so you can go ahead and upgrade your kernel without having to also upgrade your firmware at the same time. It's a totally different way of working. They have to solve that problem. But additionally, it's not just video card and booting, right? There's a lot of other hardware inside that machine that has to get up and working. And the good news is the M1 PCIe driver is now under review in the Linux kernel. Now, it's it's very early days, but this driver was created by both the Corellium and Ashi Linux team, and it's bringing up aspects of the system. Yeah, once this driver gets merged, assuming it does, Linux should see support for USB Type-A ports, as well as Ethernet on the M1 family. It also helps along support for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. We're going to need that, although more work is still needed before there's real support. And we should just say, don't expect these updates too soon. This new PCIe driver is blocked by a GPIO driver that's still considered very much a work in progress. So for now, 
the PCIe driver is just a request for comments. Leno.com slash land. Go there to get $100 in credit and support the show. No matter what skill level you're at or what technology stack you use, Leno can help your ideas come to life on the web. And if you ever have any trouble, Linode has the best customer support in the business. Awarded by the people and along with hundreds of guides and tutorials, you're going to get up and going in no time. Linode feels like part of our team. Behind the scenes, it's what makes JB possible. If it weren't for these spots, you'd never know that Linode is making all this infrastructure hum because it just runs. It's fast, it's reliable, and it's making your experience great. Linode's been easy to use and has a powerful cloud dashboard. With S3 compatible object storage, cloud firewalls, and simple one-click application deployments with their super fast networking, they are their own ISP, and so much more, you'll find there's tons of uses of that $100 credit. So go over there to linode.com slash LAN and get that credit and support the show. Their one-click Minecraft server lets you specify features like NPCs, game mode, all the critical little things you need to set up all in one nice, easy-to-use screen. And you know, 66% of companies save money working with a mix of alternative cloud providers instead of just relying on one big old hyperscaler. Linode can be part of your multi-cloud strategy. That's why you got to check it out for yourself. Linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring this episode of the Linux Action News. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, go see how much you could save and then take 25 bucks off of that at Linux.ting.com. Ting is an MVNO or a mobile virtual network operator. That means Ting mobile customers get the same access as the customers of, say, the big networks, but with better customer service and at a lower cost. With Ting Mobile, you get the same coast-to-coast coverage as you would with the big guys, but you just pay less for it. And Ting's plans are way simpler and straightforward. In fact, I love their new Set 12 plan, which gives you 12 gigs of data with unlimited talk and text for just 35 bucks a month. And a good family plan is hard to find. But with Ting's flex plans, they address this particular pain point in a way only Ting can. You add as many lines to your account as you need, you just pay 10 bucks per line. Every line gets unlimited texts and calls, and every line shares that same pool of data. And if you need two, 20, or a lot more gigs, Ting's got a perfect plan for you. And every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage, plus the freedom of no contracts ever. It's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone works on Ting, so just head over to linux.ting.com, check your current phone, create an account, pick the plan that's right for you, and then Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in, you get activated in minutes. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's brand new plans. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here. Go see how much you could save, and then take 25 bucks off of that at linux.ting.com. After 484 days, since the release of Ubuntu 20.04, Elementary OS 6 Odin was announced this week. Now, we don't typically talk about desktop distribution releases in Linux Action News, but with version 6, we really think Elementary OS is a serious workstation contender. And even though it's been a while since Ubuntu 20.04's release, with Elementary's unique take, their clean and sharp UI, and now the use of flat packs, this latest release is actually a pragmatic work machine. 
And of course, with every major release, there's been some really nice improvements, and they really nail it every time. Wes and I gave the new release a spin, and a few things jumped out at us. And I have to start with the visual stuff, because this is an area the team puts a lot of attention into. And with this release, we now see a system-wide dark theme that works in a way that respects application developers' theming choices, and also includes accent colors that you can choose when you're choosing dark theme and just make the important UI elements really pop out to you so your eyeball goes right to them. And man, if that doesn't just kind of add up over time as you're working through the interface, it starts just saving you just slices of time here and there. And the new notifications redesign also kind of plays into that. And now they are including a new TAS app. I've actually gotten my hands on this app previously. And one of the things I like about it is it's a native GTK app that syncs with the Todoist service, which is kind of nice because the quote unquote native, or I guess you could say vendor made Todoist app is an Electron app. So having a native GTK app that syncs with it, well, man, if that isn't just uh, diamonds, I don't know what is. Also, LVFS firmware support now baked into their system settings so you can update your devices. Rewritten mail. You'll remember this started as Geary, and they have redesigned this. And I've also been watching this project as uh, it's been developed, and it's come so far. And if you need a nice, clean, totally, totally simple email client, it's a great one for that. And then there's also been improvements to their terminal. I always like seeing that kind of stuff. And some smart paste protection, which I like because I put family members on elementary OS, better keyboard shortcuts, and also terminal now has better integration with the notification settings. With this release, you can also take easy screenshots of a window from its title bar, which I just think is a great idea. Love that. And there's a desktop context menu when you give a right click on your desktop that lets you configure both your desktop and your display right there. I think this is a great balance between design and available options in the menu where you can configure what makes sense without giving you every option. They've also changed their philosophy around installation, saying now every install is an OEM install. What does that mean? Well, user creation and customization, that's all handled after you've installed and rebooted. It's a really clean, straightforward installation. It's an area the team worked a lot on, so I, I went through it this time and paid a lot of attention to each screen. And I don't know if I've ever seen a better done installer, period. And I like the way they handle everything from installing the base OS to trying it, to encrypting your user directory and setting up your user account. It's all really nice. Another shift they've made in elementary OS 6 is accessibility features are just features of the operating system. And I think that's a mind shift that the community needs to make in general. And elementary OS 6 also includes improved performance just across the desktop in general. And I don't say that lightly. I definitely noticed it in my testing. In fact, it was one of those moments where I went, oh, okay, this is going to be something I'm really going to have to try out for a while. Because it seems that their work to get elementary OS on the Pinebook Pro and Raspberry Pi builds has resulted in net performance improvements for all of us. Who would have thought? Now, I should add, I like the installer. I agree with that. It's a really good work, but I think you should know it's still a little rough around the edges in a few places. I had some some random lag spikes, and I was kind of surprised to see that the advanced partitioning, if you, if you go that route, it actually just spawns Gparted. <laughs> yeah, that part does feel a little bit of like, hands up, all right, if you're hitting the adva advanced button, we're just going to assume you know what you're doing. Have Gparted. Here you go. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of torn. On one hand, it looked a little bit off. It didn't quite match the clean UI they have, and actually the theming support didn't quite play nicely with it at times. But on the other hand, honestly, 
especially if I'm installing something like Fedora with, with Anaconda, I just skip using the built-in stuff and use Gparted anyway. So I think at the end of the day, it's just a practical choice. Yeah, and I could see them just opting to go that route for now instead of investing a lot of time into an area that probably most of their users aren't taking advantage of. I bet most are just using the basic partitioning built-in. Uh, I would have led with gesture support being probably my favorite thing that they've done because I'm really getting into gesture support on all of my desktop environments. I even bought a trackpad to do that for my desktop. Uh, but instead, I'm going to give like the MVP, like the like the, the the award of this release to what they've done with flat packs. When they decided to integrate flat packs, they did it at a level no other distribution I've ever seen has done. And what I'm talking about here is they have one spot in your system settings where you can go and see all of the portal permissions that different flat packs have. And you can turn off access to different things in one spot. Every app is listed with what they can do in one place for the user to interact with. And it's brilliant. And in a way, it's one of those things that once you see it, you go, oh, this is obvious. Everybody should be doing this. And I would not be surprised at all to see something like this land in GNOME system settings eventually. Or maybe it's already on its way. It really is impressive, and it's the kind of thoughtfulness and high-level integration work that we've come to expect from the team behind Elementary. I also really appreciated that while FlatHub is not enabled out of the box, it's really easy to sideload whatever Flatpak app you might want, and it even offers to clean up the Flatpak ref file for you. So they've put thought in there, and then your sideloaded apps just show up in the App Center anyway, so it's all a nice experience. Yeah, you don't feel like you're being penalized for going outside the App Center. And that's a good thing right now because the Software Center is, you know, it's a bit empty right now as we wait for developers to update their apps. So having easy access to FlatHub and easy access to side-loaded Flatpaks and then integrating them thoughtfully bridges that gap right now and kind of speaks to what you and I were saying. When you add all of these things up, the clean UI, the GTK-based desktop that isn't GNOME shell, the Flatpak integration, the performance improvements the new usability features and accessibility features, it really is just like this great work machine that you can just sit down and start busting through your work really fast. And, you know, I think it won't be long until you start seeing developers update their apps and that software center starts filling up with apps that are native Linux apps for elementary OS 6. Now, if you're interested, but you want a little bit more tweakability, we kind of suggest that maybe you check out Pantheon Tweaks. Just don't tell Dan and Cass we told you to. I mean, sometimes a guy just needs a minimize button, but don't tell him we said it. In the meantime, get every episode of Linux Action News. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get those new episodes. And to linuxactionnews.com slash contact to let us know which tweaks you use. Today we're recording in Nebraska, but tomorrow, who knows? Follow our road trip live at colonytracker.live and hit that micro meetup link if we are going to be in your area. We do have some swag on board after all. And don't forget, join us for the upcoming Denver Meetup this Friday. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. If you can't make it, though, don't worry. This show will be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week. Music.